This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. These are tryouts at the craziest county circus you've ever been to, and the stunts are going to be more surprising than you ever thought they were going to be. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Lucy Caldwell, in for Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping our political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, it's good to see you. Hi. Also returning to the roundup is James Lynch. James is a veteran of John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. He led the war room on Howard Schultz's 2020 presidential effort. And he has more than a decade of experience in strategic and crisis communications, working with professional and collegiate sports organizations and Fortune 500 companies. He's also a senior director at Purple Strategies. James, thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. On this week's Roundup, first, the legislation pending in Congress and what impact it could have in the midterms and beyond. Next up, we'll dive into Glenn Youngkin's plans to stump for Carrie Lake in Arizona, Donald Trump's latest unhinged rally, and the voters who could determine the outcome of the midterm elections. Then we'll discuss the latest stunt for Ron DeSantis, sending migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, and the very, very real immigration's problems that lie beneath. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, the January 6th committee returns for a hearing next week. We'll preview what we expect to see, namely what the committee will need to accomplish in what is probably their last public hearing. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, Politicology Plus is where you can get our private ad-free version of the podcast, plus additional strategy and analysis not available anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button that says try free, or you can also sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll get rolling right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. On Wednesday, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer announced that the House would soon vote on a package of public safety bills after Democrats reached a deal on the spending packages. Josh Gottheimer, Ilan Omar, Joyce Beatty, and Pramila Jayapal hammered out a deal on the package of four bills. This package focuses on grants for police training and recruitment. It addresses mental health crises. It has provisions around community violence prevention 
And it has language that's working to solve gun crimes. This is according to Politico. Two bills from moderate Democrats, one from Dean Phillips and one from Abigail Spanberger, were dropped during the negotiations. Lene, on last week's roundup, we talked about how Republicans have shifted their midterm messaging away from inflation and toward issues like crime. What does this mean for the midterms? How do you think passing this bill will impact some of those attacks that they've been receiving incoming? Well, I think it's it's very obvious that Republicans are going to make crime and immigration their closing play here. Um, and I know we're going to get to the latter in a bit, and there's lots of fun stuff to talk about there. But on crime, you know, part of what, um, you know, what helped the Biden to do well, but then Democrats to underperform where the top of the ticket was in 2020 um, was the fact that they were tagged with this defund the police um, notion. The slogan that had come out of the Black Lives Matter movement and and was intended for, you know, advocacy um, and not necessarily for political strategy and turned out to be a very, very damaging slogan. So um, we have been spending the last two years as a party trying to dig ourselves out of that hole. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, this is the last part of that attempt uh, to really give the frontliners something to go home and talk about. They want to say people are concerned about crime. That's a real thing. Um, crime is uh, higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, and they want to be able to say, look, I'm actually funding the police. Um, Joe Biden said in his State of the Union, we want to fund the police um, and that they want to fund the police to do uh, accountability and training and all of the things that we know will also um, make the police force better um, and more uh, equitable and keep communities safer. So I think uh, Democrats have gotten ahead of this. Um, we're doing a good job, which we don't usually do, of uh, you know knowing that we need to push back against the left flank and say we are going to fund law enforcement and we do care about keeping our communities safe. Um, and I think that's obviously because the you know the frontliners know that this is um, something if they don't handle it right, it could really hurt them. Yeah, you're alluding to something in this approach that is not just to say we're not in favor of defunding the police, but actually also we think that we can do policing in communities better, right? Through That's community right. violence prevention, how to address mental health in a way that syncs up with uh, general existing law enforcement operations. That's a pretty complex message to convey uh, in, a, in a short time frame in a midterm year with a lot of noise and a lot of, as we said, those incoming attacks from the right. James, how should Democrats be thinking about the way to message this package to folks at home to actually see a boost in November. Can they? So the only message that's going to break through with a majority of the audience that's going to be voting in this midterm election is what Lene said. It took an election cycle, but it looks like Democrats have finally hammered out a deal. It's still a little murky, but we do have some members of the squad and mainstream Democrats agreeing to fund the police. And that is a huge message that when it does pass, that Democrats need to be championing in the suburbs. 
Yeah, I mean, they they got to a deal, which is good. And I think that's because folks realized that uh, we weren't going to be able to get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act bill to the president's desk. The House has already passed that, but obviously it doesn't have 60 votes in the Senate. Um, so we haven't been able to really make progress on the accountability pieces that we want um, around law enforcement since uh, the summer of 2020. So this is actually a step forward on those things, as well as pairing it with the funding needed to really, um, you know, make sure that our law enforcement officers are trained and, you know, prepared to keep our communities safe. You know, we've done um, a lot of research around how to deal with these immigration and crime attacks uh, over the past two years, because as I said, they really landed in 2020. Um, And one of the things we saw is that if you just let it sit out there, um, that you're, you know, someone says you wanted to fund the police, um, they buy it. And you really have to be able to actively push back in order to um, negate that claim. And um, I think my favorite example is Sherry Bustos. So Sherry Bustos was, um, you know, is is retiring now, but has been a longtime um, representative from rural Illinois. And she um, has won uh, over and over again in a Trump district. Um, but she won by a lot less this past time around. And that's because they said that she wanted to defund the police. Her husband is the sheriff. And so she was like, I don't think I need to say anything to this. This is patently ridiculous. My, I'm married to the police. And uh, and yet it really landed because she decided not to use paid media to, to push back on it. And so we are seeing a lot of um, folks doing paid media to get in front of this this time around. And I think, uh, you know, if we see better outcomes than we'd expected uh, in the fall, that's going to be a big piece of why. Yeah, I mean, getting a deal like this through, even just aside from then what messages people take out to their districts, it's so fragile getting these packages through just because of what a small um, margin <laughs> Democrats have um, in the House right now. They can only lose four votes when a bill comes to the floor, which is why you know, even if minority views like of the squad that are not the prevailing view. You've got to get them on board. That's building coalitions. And so I think one thing that's interesting to think about, James, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is as the midterm elections tighten up, going forward, what differences do you think there will be if Republicans have a slim majority? In other words, if they make some inroads, take the House in November, but don't take it in a big way, as compared to a big one, you know, a red wave blow out huge, huge uh, majorities for Republicans in the House. If it remains smaller, how will that impact what we can expect from governance? Not around this issue necessarily, but writ large. Will we see this kind of coming to the table and hashing out, hammering reasonable bills on the R side? That would be really nice to see. You know, <laughs> we've seen, uh, I think Kevin McCarthy is unveiling a new version of the contract with America tomorrow, um, doing his best impression of Newt Gingrich, which, you know, who knows how that's going to land. Um, Republicans typically don't like to put out plans ahead, except if you're Rick Scott, you know, Um <laughs> Mitch McConnell really has said outright, we do not want to put an agenda forward. Um, The difference for if there's a large majority in the House of Republicans versus a slim majority, sort of like what the Democrats have now in the House, is I think that the noise level that the biggest weapon Republicans will have is the amount of noise that they can drum up. And that's going to be through things like the Oversight Committee 
you know, harken back to the days of Benghazi-type hearings with Hunter Biden. It's going to be, you know, they're going to be able to get a lot, obtain a lot of influence and a lot of airtime through just the crazy batshit stuff that they are digging up with the oversight committee. So policy-wise, doesn't look good either way, but noise-wise, they're going to have that type of power regardless. You know, I think uh, a couple of things to add there. Um, one is that uh, I'm very worried about just like the regular governing stuff that needs to happen if insurrectionist Kevin McCarthy only has like a two vote majority, because that puts all of our lives in the hands of like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that is horrifying to think about. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not in the business of cheering for Republican wins in midterms, but I almost think like we'd be better off if they have 230 than if they have 218, because um, when we need to do things like fund the government or raise the debt ceiling so that our economy doesn't collapse, um, there are folks out there on the Republican side who have said, I'm not ever going to vote to raise the debt ceiling. Like we're not going to do it. And that is a horrifying prospect. And we got very close to the brink last time they were in charge. And that was pre-Marjorie Taylor Greene era. So I'm, I'm worried about the just normal stuff that Congress needs to do to keep government running and the economy running. Um, and then if you look at the folks that have been willing to play with Democrats to make some progress on things like guns, they're all retiring. Like a lot of those folks who came to the table on that bipartisan guns bill, almost everyone who voted for um, the uh, Electoral Count Act reform in the House, they're leaving. The reasonable people are leaving and they're leaving us with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Lene, you're exactly right to point to the types of the regular governing stuff that's going to it only takes one apple to upset the cart here. And we saw that with Ted Cruz when he went and did his whole thing about the debt. I think it was the debt ceiling. Right. Um, we saw it with Ron Paul. He used to do it all the time. It's happening with the governors now. But the Republican Party the candidates have learned that if they want to make a name for themselves, they have to be the only person who's willing to say the craziest thing or do the craziest thing at that moment. And that hijacks our political process. Lene's right to be scared. I was trying to think of the good things that might come out of <laughs> the Congress, but uh, we we should also be thinking about the things, the terrible things that will happen or could happen. Yeah, I mean, you're you're previewing a fight that we hope will happen sooner rather than later, Lene, but the debt ceiling, that is going to need to be raised in, in 2023, and it seems unlikely that it's going to get addressed before the midterms. I'm not sure I agree with that theory about the large margins versus smaller, because in a larger margin, at least some of these guys, some quasi-moderates could hide, but but you're probably right. And you're right to flag the Electoral Count Act. So also on Wednesday this week, the House passed the Presidential Election Reform Act. That is a bill introduced by Liz Cheney and Zoe Lofgren, both of whom are on the January 6th committee. Um, and that bill does, among other things, uh, fix some of the problems that we've talked about on this podcast with the Electoral Count Act. It would make it more difficult for members of Congress to object to votes without legitimate concerns. It would clarify that the vice president has a strictly ministerial role in that process, which flashback to Mike Pence sort of running through the halls, uh, afraid for his life. 
And that bill passed this week in the House, 229 to 203. So there were nine Republicans who actually voted for that reform. There's a similar bill in the Senate that has 10 Republican co-sponsors. So fingers crossed they should have the votes to pass it. But there are some differences, particularly the number of legislators in the language of the bill, the number of legislators you'd need for an objection to stand. So, Lene, can you lay out for us how important it's going to be to strike a deal here and pass something before Republicans likely take back the House? It is the most important thing that we could possibly be talking about and doing. I mean, if we look at all the ways that Trump tried to steal the election in 2020 and that uh, they're setting up to do again in 2024, um, the the Senate bill, which is the one that actually could get to the president's desk, fixes like five of the six ways that he was trying to steal the election. That's really good. We should be fixing all of them, um, but certainly I would take five of six. And, And I think, you know, there's, a little bit of jockeying between the House and Senate because, of course, Liz Cheney has her bill that she loves the most and, you know, they want it to be that one. But um, ultimately, I think that Democrats um, in the House will come together and support whatever the Senate bill is just because, um, and they absolutely must, just because of the urgency of the threat that we're seeing. And, um, you know, we know that uh, we, we we were at the brink and the only thing that stopped them from succeeding the first time um, was a couple of people that we've never heard of uh, who had very, you know, small uh, jobs in the elections process actually doing their job and standing up to the pressure. Um, and now they're replacing all of those people with their own goons. And so it is absolutely the most important thing we could do to pass whatever version we can get through the Senate and get it to the president's desk. There's a video essay that everyone should look up that is uh, has come out in the New York Times this week. It features uh, a video journalist, but also, also Michelle Cottle, about the precinct strategy that we've talked about, which is basically the Republican attempt to place Trump loyalists, MAGA loyalists at every single level of the elections process down to precinct committeemen, committee watch, election watchers, trainings around how to lodge complaints, trainings on basically how to be part of subverting a free and fair election. So everyone should watch that. I mean, they literally told them they're training them to be spies and they gave them a uh, an RNC hotline to call. I mean, it's oh, bananas. The hotline the, was fun. The hotline. But it's like um, in Detroit, they have 800 of these mega Republican poll workers that have signed up just in the city of Detroit. I didn't even know that there were 800 Republicans in Detroit. I've never met a Republican in Detroit. So I don't know where these people came from, but they found all of them and they're all going to be working the polls. And it is horrifying. There's one other piece I want to get to as we think about the midterms, and that is President Biden's comments in his 60 Minutes interview about COVID. Let's take a listen to that. Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. Well, I didn't know that whether people were wearing masks or not was the indicator (laughs) of whether we should think that uh, the pandemic is over. Democrats circa 
2020 might like to have a word. Uh, But James, how do you think that public sentiment around the pandemic, where it is now, where Joe Biden thinks it is, where Joe, Joe Biden maybe is trying to shift it, could impact the midterms? The raw politics of this are positive for Joe Biden to say that the pandemic is over because for better or worse, Lucy, like you said, um, nobody's out there wearing a mask. And that's kind of our measurement right now of is it safe to walk into that store or do I feel safe in this store right now uh, or on the subway or whatever it might be? Um, This White House has had a tough time with big definition, big um, ideas like the pandemic and the word recession. (laughs) <laughs> and defining them and declaring what they are, when they're over, uh, are we in one, are we out of one? And I think Biden actually was pretty savvy here to try and nip it in the bud and just pick one and stick with it. Um, it listen, does that mean, are there consequences to him saying the pandemic is over? Sure, that's a headline. But right after that, he said, we still have COVID. You know, and I guess, I, I know that people don't pay attention to what's said after that first line, but that's, you know, there is a message about the pandemic that still needs to be sent and absorbed. And unfortunately, it it's probably not going to happen. So just kind of at those, let's see what happens. But on the politics side of it, I think Biden is heading in the right direction on here. There's no reason um, that there's any political downside to saying the pandemic is over. Like, we all want that. So if, you know, if saying made it so, that'd be great. Um, but, uh, and, and I think we saw that really clearly in 2021. Um, Youngkin won in part because he was able to say, you know, portray Democrats as the close it down folks that wanted to keep schools shuttered and keep restaurants shuttered and um, make everyone stay at home forever. And um, and that's part of, of why we saw a 12-point shift between Biden's performance in Virginia and then going to Glenn Youngkin. Um, the same was true in New Jersey in that election. But thankfully, we have been able to get a little bit more back to normal. Um, COVID is not at the top of people's um, you know list in terms of priorities. Um, and that's a very good thing for Democrats, because if we're seen as the shut it down party, that's bad. I will say, however, it's it's scary because the thing that happened right after Biden said the pandemic was over is John Corden said, great, then I guess you don't need any more funding. And we're about to go into the winter. We need tests. We need shots in the arms. We need, you know, there's still a lot of things that we need to do to keep people safe. And I do think this gave Republicans a perfect opening to say, okay, great. I'm glad you have all you need. Uh, You clearly, you know, think it's over. So why would I give you more billions of dollars? And that is worrisome on a public health front for sure sure. Um, It's also a a legal problem for some of the things that they've tried to do, like student loan forgiveness, right? Like if the pandemic is over, then the fact that you've um, you know, declared you can wipe away everybody's student loans with the stroke of a pen due to COVID um, seems a little bit, you know, legally fraught. Um, and so I do think we're going to see this come back to bite them in a couple of ways, but certainly it's good politics. Speaking of Glenn Youngkin, on Monday, everyone's favorite so-called normal Republican governor from Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, announced that he is going to stump for Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake next month. This trip will be part of a broader national tour to campaign for Republican candidates and governors. 
He's expected to hold political and fundraising events for Lake. He's also made recent trips to Nevada, Michigan, and Kansas. But Lake is the most prominent MAGA Republican that Youngkin has stumped for so far this cycle. Translation, most insane, perhaps? (laughs) Youngkin spent his campaign for governor painting himself as a good Republican, close enough to where the party is now to not turn off Trump fans, but he also didn't go all in with Trump. In fact, behind the scenes, political operatives in Virginia and around the area know that he actually was telling Trump, don't show up to my events, right? It was a a very uh, artful needle to thread. So it leads me to wonder, what does Youngkin's move to support Lake tell you about the position of the Republican Party nationally? James, this is the world you come from. How are you thinking about this? Virginia 2021, that election is a much different demographic than Arizona or what we're talking about national. And the party has changed a little bit in that short amount of time on certain issues. Um, what I, When I think of what Glenn Youngkin's doing right now, it's this is about you know your standard creating relationships, building the money network, and prep for a twenty twenty four run, and it's a stepping stone. It's you know, we should expect to see people like Glenn Youngkin to be sucked in deeper and deeper into these sort of uh, events with people like Carrie Lake and uh, and endorsements and even some crazier gambits as we move forward. Because if they're going to run in twenty twenty four. In the, in the GOP primary, they're going to be competing with potentially Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who is still what I consider the most fascinating man in American politics. But, you know, this 2024 GOP primary is not going to be a race for the presidency. It's, you know, these are tryouts at the craziest county circus you've ever been to. And the stunts are going to be more surprising than you ever thought they were going to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that in 2021, ahead of that Virginia election, we could see, I mean, we see it in the numbers, but you could even just see it anecdotally driving around places like, say, Alexandria, how many Republicans for whom they just could not plug their nose, hold their nose and vote for Trump in 2020 felt like Glenn Youngkin was, quote, a good Republican, right? I mean, I remember even feeling like I was starting to doubt myself. Like, am I am I losing it because I'm so deep into never Trump <laughs> mind meld that I just am not even, op- should I be more open to Glenn Youngkin? He made it easy not to be. But I do wonder how this will make people or how it should make people reevaluate those so-called good Republican candidates if they're going to start throwing their weight behind the anti-democracy Republican crowd. And I I totally agree with you that this is a precursor to 2024 uh, for Glenn Youngkin. His intentions are clear. But what is not clear is how we could hope for voters to perceive that and translate that at the ballot box or not. In Virginia, Youngkin was able to tighten the race in northern suburbs, some of the places I just mentioned, by focusing on topics like education, crime, inflation. And he just did it while ignoring Trump's lies about the election. He just sidestepped those. So, Lene, I wonder how likely is it that someone like Youngkin can help move suburban voters over to the MAGA camp? Now, Presumably, Youngkin doesn't have so much name ID in <laughs> Maricopa County, 
perhaps, but but is there a risk that we're, that a permission structure is being created here by those Biden Youngkin voters to inadvertently then move suburban voters, for example, so-called normal voters, over to Team MAGA? Yes, there is a real risk. And I think, you know, when you look at um, the primaries and how they shook out right now, we're um, the last primaries were last week. And so we're full on in general election mode. But you have to remember, um, there were uh, a bunch of far left candidates who tried to primary Democrats um, and they all lost. And then you had a bunch of uh, crazy Trump uh, Trump endorsements um, come through and they almost all won. And that really shows you the Democrats are putting forward um, and trying to own uh, the mainstream right now. And the Republicans have really owned the extreme. Um, and even the normie Republicans, like New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who seems like a totally legit human being, is now going to back the crazy MAGA candidate there because they have decided, even the quote-unquote good Republicans, that it's more important to side with their team, um, even if their team is bananas. And I think that's very scary. And I think there it does create a structure to say, okay, well, I want to put Mitch McConnell in charge because I want, you know, I want less taxes. Um, so I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Carrie Lake, who is a crazy person. And, you know, we've seen it happened before. And we're seeing it again with all of these um, folks who even like the the more good Republicans um, that ran in primaries are now endorsing their, their mega folks that beat them. And I think it's horrifying to watch and absolutely damaging moving forward. You know, we have seen that in other places, including in Arizona, of the so-called moderate normal Republican endorsing, endorsing Carrie Lake. So it it sounds like what you're saying is that there are no normal Republicans. And I would imagine James probably agrees. <laughs> well, we we went through this in 2016 when Chris Christie hopped on stage in Florida and endorsed Donald Trump. And that was really kind of the first, you know, uh, real mainstream Republican politician setting up the permission structure for people to support Donald Trump. It doesn't, you know, these people don't think much of it when they do it, but in totality, the effect is huge. And we're seeing that happen. You know, what is the saying? The chickens are coming home to roost. So speaking of a further (laughs) down the long slide, uh, move away from normal. Last Saturday, Donald Trump headlined a rally in Youngstown, Ohio, and it was ostensibly to support J.D. Vance. But he then did openly mock J.D. Vance during (laughs) that rally. He said, J.D. is kissing my ass. He wants my support so bad. During the event, Trump delivered what the New York Times called a, quote, dark address over music that was strikingly similar to the QAnon theme song, Where We Go One, We Go All. Last week, Trump posted an image of himself on True Social, wearing, that's, you know, one of the platforms he still manages to get on, wearing a Q pin on his lapel. And there was a slogan beneath that read, the storm is coming. In the QAnon conspiracy theory, the storm is the moment when Donald Trump will retake power, take down his enemies, and possibly have them executed live on television. QAnon has moved 
further and further from the fringe toward the center of the Republican Party. Remember, we used to talk about alt-right, right? That's kind of just the right now. Trump seems to be openly embracing the QAnon true believers. Lene, how do you think Republicans are going to try to hold together this coalition of QAnon adherents and working class voters? It seems like you've got Glenn Youngkin on one side trying to pull everyone to say, look, look, yeah, it's normal. And I'm just going to link arms with Carrie Lake, but everything's going to be fine. But then on the other hand, you have Trump and others going all in on the storm is coming crazy town. So how will they hold together this coalition? Is there a coalition to hold together of QAnon adherents and working class voters as they try to win back some of the middle, some suburban voters? Is this even possible? Is this the greatest gift Republicans could give to Democrats? Are Democrats going to screw it up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really the question. But I think the most important thing you just said is QAnon has a theme song. I want to know more about that. Maybe we listen to it later. But uh, (laughs) not in plus. (laughs) (laughs) But the, um, you know, the, the only way they can do it is by making the alternative unpalatable. Right. So if you think that Democrats are um, socialist commies who are coming for your guns and your kids and um, trying to make them all transgender, like then you're not going to vote for Democrats. Right. You have to um, you you hold your nose and you go with the QAnon guys. And I think um, that is their strategy is just to try to make this a referendum on Joe Biden, um, try to tie um, mainstream Democrats to some of the craziest far left um notions and slogans and um, make it so that um, voting for the D is not an option for people. Um, I think that's how Glenn Youngkin probably feels, right? He has to get in bed with Carrie Lake because uh, he thinks the D is not an option for him. And um, and I think that that's the only way you hold, you hold this kind of a wacky coalition together is by um, making the other side so bad that you have nowhere else to go. You mean Dems are not an option as in he just believes that turnout for Republicans has to happen at the polls, P-O-L-E-S, like at the extreme, that there's just no pulling people into the middle? Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. Youngkin won in Virginia by appealing to, as you've said, the Biden-Youngkin voters. So he knows um, how to play that game. And he knows that it wasn't just turnout, um, but turnout did help. And he had crazy turnout in rural areas because of all the critical race theory stuff he was doing. So he was able to kind of play both sides on that. He was saying, you know, kind of wackadoodle DeSantis things um, in one room and then sounding like a Chamber of Commerce Republican in another. Um, and I think that's still the game he's trying to play. Um, but, uh, but you know, for Trump, he he thinks that um, just getting his supporters out to vote is the only thing he needs to do. And frankly, if he's trying to win a Republican primary, he's right. You know, the Republican primary voters are still for Trump. And the way that the Republican nomination works, it's winner take all states. And so if you get 25%, 30%, and the rest of it is split, you win all of those, you know, you win um, the, the whole shebang. And that's how Donald Trump got there in the first place. So I think people forget when they look at all these polls that say, oh, Trump's approval ratings going down. He doesn't need everyone in the Republican Party. He only needs like a third and he can make it through. 
Well, the the Republican primary process is obviously a very different animal from the general election. So there's the short-term winning in a Republican primary, and then you go into the general. And and I'm interested, James, in in your take on this. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago on the Roundup that a, a prominent, nationally prominent Democrat telling me privately uh, a few earlier this summer that you know Republicans are insurrectionists and Democrats are aliens. This is a a person who's a a booster for Democrats who was essentially <laughs> saying, you know, yeah, Republicans, it's it's cl- clear to someone who's not blind that Republicans have just gone into this very scary territory. But on the other hand, Democrats are not necessarily meeting the moment, you know, pound for pound. And I know this is a thing that L- Lene spends a lot of time thinking about, but James, as a person who's historically helped Republicans in many situations. What do you see as the opportunity here for them? (laughs) What should Democrats be doing? We talked a little bit about this in the context of how to message around legislation, around midterms, but is there something that Democrats are not doing that they should be doing in how they message around culture to beat some of this back? So kind of Machiavelli and speaking, the Democrats were handed a huge gift when the Dobbs decision came out. And I say that not to say that the Dobbs decision was right. I'm, I'm saying, politically speaking, that gins up the base and brings the votes out, right? That's not a secret. But that is really the first win Democrats have had in the culture war in a long time. And to say that that was a win is kind of a weird way to put it. But stick with me here. This is why you see Republicans try going to drastic measures to try and make immigration a thing right now. With Ron, we're, we're going to get to it, but the stunts that are pulled, you know, previously, uh, Ted Cruz he infiltrated himself with like a gang in some undercover video. If you haven't seen it yet, please go do but he was uh, talking, watching yeah he was talking about some slave trade uh happening at the border and it was a very slickly produced video from you know uh ted cruz undercover and it was an attempt to bring immigration into the discussion Let, let's look ahead to a big picture in 2024 if democrats can pull something off like carl rove did in the year 2000 where he got uh marriage amendment on and a lot of state uh, ballots, if they can do something similar with abortion or get Republicans like Lindsey Graham to put an abortion ban on the ballot in a bunch of these states, that is going to drive turnout in a big way. So I think the test for Democrats is to really find out if abortion uh, reproductive rights drives people to the polls in 2022. And if it does, I would hang a lot of resources on that in 2024. You know, I just have to say, though, on the on your point about the culture wars, um, we won the marriage culture war, too. And, you know, like to to the point where we are legitimately talking about um, potentially having 60 votes in the Senate to enact national marriage equality, which is something I don't actually think it's going to get across the finish line because I've worked on this issue for many years. And I just I, I think they're going to come up with some stupid reason that they aren't going to support it because, you know, that's that's you know, kind of what they're, the Romneys of the world are already hinting, um, and they're going to go religious liberty, whatever, and then, and 
you know, not really get this over the finish line, but they're talking about it. Like, that's insane. So I do think we have won some culture wars over the last um, few years. We certainly um, did there. We've really, really advanced the conversation around transgender people. We have, we made progress this summer on guns. Um, it's, it's really, and it, we're even, as we talked about earlier, making progress on crime. You know, I think we're, we're in a much more defensible place as a party on crime than we were two years ago. But immigration is, is the one that is our Achilles heel because we don't have a solution. We are um, pretending that the problem is not happening. Um, and we're, and we're no closer to having comprehensive immigration reform than at, we're further away from that than at any time that since I've come to Washington almost 20 years ago. Well, that's a great segue, Lene. Let's get to some of the stunts that James was talking about. Last week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis hired a plane to fly roughly 50 migrants from Texas, yes, Texas, not Florida, to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. They did have a brief layover in Florida. On Friday, some of the migrants said they were misled about where they were actually being taken. On Tuesday, they filed a lawsuit against DeSantis and other state officials for the stunt, calling it a fraudulent and discriminatory scheme. So I guess I'm I'm wondering, you know, underneath this spectacle, there is a major migration crisis. Of course, you just alluded to it. U.S. authorities have recorded more than 2 million encounters with people trying to cross the southern border this year alone, more than 203,000 in August alone. 22% last month were repeat attempts. So the 2 million encounters represent fewer than 2 million migrants. There's no question there's a problem. Previously on the show, we've talked about how there are more migrants coming from outside the Northern Triangle countries. So migrants coming into the U.S. from countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. El Paso's Democratic mayor, Oscar Lesser, said that one of the big changes is that unlike in the past, people are showing up without any money and without any place to go. He estimated that about 50% of migrants don't have a sponsor or money to get settled. El Paso, in fact, is using emergency funds to take migrants who are headed to New York City up to the Big Apple. Veronica Escobar, who's a, a Democrat who represents El Paso, told CNN that we've put too much focus on closing the border and restricting immigration and eliminating legal pathways instead of reforming the asylum system. So that is the backdrop I do think that, that that's an important backdrop to acknowledge in the backdrop of, of Ron DeSantis's stunts. But I think I, I want, James, to start with you. What will it take? We'll come back to DeSantis, but what is it going to take to shift the conversation about immigration away from the polls to have real conversation about reform? This has been a question that has... Uh, dogged political strategists and politicians alike since the last time they had some sort of immigration reform back in like the 80s, right? We thought we had something in 2007, 8-ish that ended up tanking, almost tanking John McCain's presidential campaign that was agreed to with George Bush as president and uh, I believe Ted Kennedy kind of leading the Democrats. um, And that was comprehensive reform. I am incredibly, we are nowhere near that place today. There's no, there is not going to be a comprehensive bipartisan agreement that satisfy that you know somewhat satisfies the leaders on both parties or the majorities on both parties. 
And we've seen how Congress works uh, within the last 20 years has been it's you have to have majority rule to really get something through. And when you do have majority rule, the thing that you do tend to get through ends up being more towards the pole of which you are a part of, right? So I think the next time something happens on immigration will be when there is a president who is from one party and the members of Cong and, and the Senate and the House are both from that same party. <laughs> uh, You're in the gang of eight, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Lucy, it's going to probably be a mix of all the different things that are floating around today. So we've got DACA, we've got all these things that are kind of floating around the edges that have been given through either different uh, presidential, um, not decree. Executive um, orders. Between <laughs> executive orders, been watching too much of the crown and all <laughs> of the monarchy Come stuff back lately. to our country. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a mix of, of a whole bunch of executive orders have gone out over the last couple of years. Uh, they've got different detention policies. The uh, th- There's a lot of national security implications today than there ever were, uh, especially, you know, since the 80s. So this type of decision, I don't, or this type of uh, package, it's gigantic. I don't know if it would be able to be passed as some big, you know, omnibus, cromnibus type thing, um, but it encompasses much more than just who comes into our country and who doesn't. Well, and I think it, what makes this even harder is that there are um, there are splits even within the party. You know, I don't think that there is a comprehensive immigration reform bill that Pramila Jayapal and Joe Manchin could agree on, let alone, you know, <laughs> a bipartisan version. And um, in part, that's because um, the immigration movement has really, really polarized during the Trump administration for obvious reasons. Um, the, the movement went bananas. And, um, and, you know, there was a deal on the table um, in 2019, after the blue wave of 2018, um, when we were trying to fund the government at the beginning of that Congress, there was a deal on the table to legalize dreamers for $4 billion in border security. And the movement turned it down because they didn't want the border security money. And so what we ended up getting was $4 billion in border security and nothing for dreamers. And now we are just waiting because in the next three weeks, a court is going to strike down DACA yet again and pop that up to the Supreme Court. And it is almost guaranteed that the Supreme Court will take the case, rule next spring, and undo um, the the limited protections we have been able to get for dreamers. So this, it's going to be bad. But I'm telling you, it, even if we had you know, the 2013 bill that got 70-something votes in the Senate, um, on the floor, the the left wouldn't agree to it because it had border security money in it. And for some reason, you know, in a in a different way, like the the guns movement has said, okay, let's like take whatever progress we can get, then we can build on it. But that same ethos really hasn't um, made it to um, to be driving in the immigration movement's decisions. And I think that that has put us in a position where we really have no plan for how we're going to fix this problem over the next decade. So just for for folks listening, part of, I think, the context that you're alluding to a little bit in the DACA Dreamers piece that makes it so inhumane and 
<laughs> clarify if I'm wrong about this, is that in administering that program, which, as you say, is now in in danger of being struck down, we we asked people to identify themselves mm-hmm. as not having been born here, right? As having been being here, sort of quote unquote, illegally, who are now surfaced in the system on the good faith understanding that they're going to be taken taken care of or rather not deported, right? That's right. And now, you know, I think there are a, a lot of folks who are trying to say, is there anything we can do about that in the lame duck? And I think the answer is no, because the folks, even the folks like Marco Rubio, who was in the gang of eight, have turned away. Um, Lindsey Graham used to be the number one proponent of the DREAM Act. He's turned away. It's just the Republican Party has decided that um, being anti-immigrant is better than actually fixing this problem. And so they're not willing to come to the table. And then that has meant that the left is driving what's happening on the Democratic side. And, and it means that we're left with absolutely no plans. So I don't want to let Ron DeSantis off the hook here. <laughs> <laughs> but but I do think that understanding the underpinnings of, of what created the conditions for these stunts, with a little bit of a finer point here, is important. And Melissa DeRosa had a column in the Daily Beast uh, this week. And it, the headline was, Biden and Democrats' incompetence led to these awful GOP migrant stunts. And essentially it tracked the reversal of the Trump 2019 um, uh, remain in Mexico policy around asylum seekers. This is what we're alluding to when we're talking about people coming in from the Golden Triangle and beyond to essentially allow asylum seekers to come back in in large, much larger numbers, but without appropriate um, appropriate measures to be able to sustain and take in those asylum seekers. And obviously we're seeing that from anecdotes like the El Paso mayor talking about people really showing up with no resources whatsoever. So I, I wonder, sort of holding that context how does this create these conditions for the Ron DeSantis stunt? And what is the Ron DeSantis counter end game, whether it then relates to how Republicans orient themselves around programs like DACA, what's to come for that, or the future of, 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 of immigration reform? Like, what is Ron DeSantis's vision, other than being sick and twisted, for immigration policy in the future? What can we perceive that vision to be, James, from this crazy stunt? So I think you're giving a lot of credit to Ron DeSantis that there's an actual actual immigration, uh, you know, plan that he's trying to carry out here. Um, This was a stunt that he flew uh, Lord from what we're reading and uh, maybe made some false promises and Lord... Uh, with McDonald's gift cards, immigrants on planes in uh, Texas, and then they flew to Martha's Vineyard. You don't get much more stunt related than that. It's just absolutely absurd that this even happened. But I don't think that this is some part of a big immigration plan. What it shows is you know, trying to get Democrats to be lured into a trap or Northeasterners lured into a trap of, you know, NIMBY, not in my backyard type thing. And what he's doing is effective. He's showing people 
that there are an abundance of uh, people coming into our country in Florida or Texas, these different border states, and they are overwhelmed. And here's what happens when they come to your little enclave too. And he's grabbing every headline he can with it. I think you're right. He w- It was effective in that he changed the topic, right? And so um, we've been talking a lot about abortion. We've been talking about the fact that gas prices are going down pretty precipitously now. Things have been turning in the right direction for Democrats. We've been getting some, um, some momentum on the left. And he wanted to to move us back to what is essentially, um, you know, our most vulnerable place in terms of uh, talking about what, you know, what our position is um, and, and, you know, what we're going to do about this problem. Um, So, but I'll go back to what James said about, um, you know, when you have complete control of the presidency and and both houses of Congress is when something's going to get done. Trump had that. Trump had a long time of that where they didn't have anything left to do after the tax bill, right? They did they did tax cuts and then they looked around and were like, oh, was there something else we were going to do? No. Well, let's just do a bunch of judges. That's, that's all they did with their majority last time. And Trump, who obviously campaigned on this issue, uh, did jack shit about it, frankly. And then, you know, just continued to play um, you know, his, his build the wall music. And, and that was it. And he only built like three feet of wall. Um, he didn't even get that done, even though he pilfered a bunch of money from the DOD. Um, the Republicans do not have a plan. And I know I just said the Democrats don't have a plan. We don't have a great one. We have some, we don't want to talk about them because they're very unpopular. Um, uh, they don't have one at all. And so I think, you know, thinking about, oh, what is Ron DeSantis's plan on immigration? It's, it's just this. It's just a stunt, um, which is kind of crazy because he's the governor of Florida. There's a lot of immigrants in Florida. Um, you'd think he might have a, a you know more nuanced viewpoint, but clearly, um, you know, the the fewer immigrants are better. Crowd has taken over in the Republican Party, and it's really really sad to watch. I'm I'm really curious um, to see if there's a real trickle down effect here. With this type of behavior, um, you know, the ultimate stuntman, Donald Trump, kind of kicked this all off with all the different types of things like the Muslim ban or, you know, and all the buying Greenland. Kids in cages. Kids in cages. You know, Greenland was different than immigration, but kids in cages. Um, there was a, and that topic's a little bit different because the DOD had some things happening during the Obama presidency. So there's, but for the most part, yes. Um, but crazy ideas came out of Donald Trump's mouth, like nuking hurricanes, right? Mm-hmm. And um, put the light inside the body. I really hope those codes are not. <laughs> yeah, I really hope those codes are not at Mar-a-Lago right now, uh, where DeSantis is. DeSantis is the governor. Um, but we've seen DeSantis do the same type of crap, right? Like, you know, canceling Disney, uh, the biggest employer <laughs> in his state. Uh, creating a election police force or uh, mandating pro-democracy curriculum, which we have to see what that pro-democracy curriculum really looks like in his state. But they are manufacturing stunts. And so we've gone from the presidential level, not that stunts are new in politics, but the level that we're seeing is kind of uh, advanced. Uh, We've seen at the presidential level, now at the gubernatorial level, are we going to see this down the ballot on with different types of leaders in the Republican Party is something that I have a lot of fear about. 
and I hope that we does it does not happen because it drastically takes away from the policy decisions and the real work that needs to happen uh, in government. Well, stunts are one thing, but playing with human lives are certainly another, as we're seeing through this Ron DeSantis stunt. But I'll I'll leave you as we wrap this with one a couple of bright spots, which is that something else that has surfaced this week are some stories of immigrants who have been um, lured in by these crazy stunts. And remember, there were some some months back when they were busing people into places like Washington, D.C., where journalists have followed up with them and have said that uh, and have learned that they're actually doing great and like, you know, have found homes to rent and have jobs and are really making their way in America. And uh, another Martha's Vineyard uh recently relocated Martha's Vineyard uh, immigrant (laughs) said he was looking forward to making his way to Boston where he thinks he can find a job and start a new life for himself. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Lene, what have you got? Uh, Well, I already gave one of my two answers, which is this DACA case that is going to come down any minute. And I think it's going to really throw um, immigration back into the forefront in a little bit of a different light than than the DeSantis piece. Right. Because dreamers are absolutely the, um, you know, uh, the most sympathetic version. These are people who were brought here as children through no fault of their own and um, have a lot of support for um, being able to remain in the the only country they've ever known as home. So um, that will at least give Democrats something to talk about that they it feel is safer ground than some of this border stuff. So that's good. Um, but it's very bad for the dreamers. It's really, really messed up, as we said, that they're uh, we asked them to come out of the shadows. They've done everything we asked, and now we're going to take their status away. So that is happening. The other piece um, that I'd watch from the courts is around student loans. Um, so the administration has said that it's going to release its application for student loan forgiveness in the early part of October. Um, that is coming up very soon, about a week away from October. And um, it, it that will be the first official action that the department has taken to do what Joe Biden has promised in canceling student debt. And so that is when everyone's going to start to sue. Um, So we've seen student debt be out of the news. It is going to be back in the news um, and likely uh, come raging back with multiple lawsuits and a whole mess of the department trying to uh, carry out this thing that was promised in the middle of uh, a midterm and also a legal battle. So stay tuned for all of the dumpster fire to come on student loans very soon. James, how about you? Mine is a little bit lighter than the student loan dumpster fire. But um, this Sunday on Hulu, um, ABC is premiering a, uh, it's like a docu-series, I guess, where they have a bunch of young embeds uh, from ABC News who are going to be embedded in different campaigns across the country. So they're in different battlegrounds. I think one of them was Nevada. Uh, They've got Pennsylvania, um, North Carolina, Missouri. And so you've got these different uh, stories that are going to be told at the candidate level, congressional candidate level, which we often don't see. These things, these types of documentary things are always for presidential campaigns. So I think it's going to be really cool to see it 
from the uh, from a national point of view, but from all these different embeds, the eight of them or so that are embedded in different races across the country. So it's this Sunday on Hulu. Uh, I'm just as somebody who's a political animal. This is the kind of stuff that I love to watch. Cool. My rec is similar, and I alluded to it earlier, which is that the New York Times put out a pretty long video essay this week um, by Johnny Harris and Michelle Cottle, and it's entitled Inside the Completely Legal GOP Plot to Destroy American Democracy. And it really does go sort of meticulously. It 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 really redirects attention from um, hemming and hawing over uh legislation in in states to say remove drop boxes or around so-called ballot harvesting it acknowledges those of course it doesn't say that it's cool with that but says that's actually <laughs> a huge distraction yeah. from what's actually happening that is very very pernicious which is this precinct strategy that we've talked about a lot and uh, to me cuz i spend most of my time thinking about these kinds of affronts to our democracy it's one of the first really mainstream very clear-cut explanation of exactly what is happening. It, it came out on Wednesday of this week, so I would urge everyone to go look that up. But not before bedtime. That sounds nightmarish. <laughs> Maybe first thing in the morning. All right, my friends, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we are going to preview the next January 6th hearings, where can everybody find you on the internet, James? Uh, I pop up on Twitter every now and then at James G. Lynch. And Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.